This will be handed to you by Dr. Thornton of this city, who goes forward to lay before you a plan which he has prepared for the Capitol, proposed to be built in the federal city. Grandeur, simplicity, and convenience appear to be so well combined in this plan of Dr. Thornton's that I have no doubt of its meeting with that approbation from you, which I have given it upon an attentive inspection, and which it has received from all those who have seen it and are considered as judges of such things. How far the expense of such a building, as is exhibited by the plan, will comport with the funds of the city, you will be the best judges. After having made an estimate of the quantity of materials and labor to be employed in executing it, and to obviate objections that may be raised on this head, it should be considered that the external of the building will be the only immediate expense to be incurred. The internal work, and many of the ornamental parts without, may be finished gradually, as the means will permit, and still the whole be completed within the time contemplated by law for the use of the building. As Washington entered his second term, the federal capital being constructed along the banks of the Potomac River was still mostly just visions drafted on paper. When he wrote this letter to the commissioners for the District of Columbia on March 3, 1793, the construction on the Capitol building was over half a year behind that of the President's house. The design for that building had been selected by Washington himself in Georgetown on July 17th of the previous year, with the winning architect, James Hoban, being chosen by the commissioners to serve as general supervisor of the construction effort. Hoban had wrapped up his business affairs in his home city of Charleston, South Carolina, and uprooted himself to the federal district. The cornerstone of the president's house was laid in October, and work began to prepare the site for construction while Hoban incorporated into his plans changes requested by Washington. However, before construction could begin, they would need to secure supplies with which to build both major structures. The kilns and sheds required for brickmaking were in operation by March 14, 1793. Advertisements went out in late 1792 for timber and lumber that would be needed for the buildings, and the spring and summer of 1793 was spent securing various types of wood. One of the largest problems in the process, though, was in securing skilled labor. The exterior walls of the president's house were intended to be constructed of stone. But skilled tradesmen were often unwilling to leave the urban centers where they currently operated for the wilderness of a planned city under construction, especially when the wages were already high in all of the major cities along the seaboard, which had ample work and all the comforts of urbanity. Then Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson had suggested to the commissioners early on in the process that they should consider importing skilled laborers from outside the U.S., but they had scoffed at the notion at the time. As time progressed and skilled American labor proved so difficult to attract, they came to change their mind. Skilled tradesmen were leaving Europe in droves in order to flee the disruptions caused by the French Revolution and all the ensuing wars that followed. Ultimately, many of the stonecutters involved in the construction of the President's house were from Scotland. Now, I know you're saying, hold on, Jerry, there weren't any revolutions or wars happening in Scotland. No, that's true. But there were taxes levied to pay for Great Britain's battles against France. There was also conscription into the army. For many Scotsmen, coming to America seemed a much more lucrative and less dangerous prospect. The first recruits came from among the population of recent immigrants to the U.S. But in January 1793, the commissioners sent letters to Great Britain 
France, and the Netherlands, asking about tradesmen who would be interested to cross the Atlantic to help build the nation's capital. Official contacts in those nations, however, were not interested in helping to facilitate a drain of talent from their nations, so the commissioners and others involved in the efforts reached out to personal contacts. They made a point of asking anyone willing to come to sail directly to the city under construction rather than passing through major cities like New York, Philadelphia, or Baltimore. They didn't want any of their tradesmen to be lured off to jobs in those more desirable locales. Slowly but surely, the workforce came together. Not all of those who worked on the construction of the federal city were compensated for their labor, however. Beginning in the autumn of 1791, enslaved individuals were hired from their slave masters to work on the president's house and the capital. They were originally hired at a monthly rate, but the commissioners decided it would be more cost-effective to hire them at a rate of 21 pounds a year, with the commission providing their food during that time, while the slave owner would provide clothing and a blanket. Beyond general manual labor, some of the enslaved people were trained by the master stonemasons, quote, to cut the rough foundation stones needed for construction. While they were allowed to do some basic stonework, the Scottish stonecutters that were imported for the project refused to have people of color as apprentices, and thus those individuals were shut out of learning more advanced stonecutting techniques and skills. They were allowed to serve as apprentices in other parts of the operation until 1799. While we do have some records about the enslaved workers, other payment records that would have helped us to know exactly how many individuals worked on the construction projects have been lost to history. What we do know is that two issues that would be prominent in American public discourse moving forward, namely slavery and immigration, would be key to the construction of the nation's capital. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. By 1795, Construction lagged on the U.S. Capitol as the first supervisor of the project had been dismissed in mid-November 1794, but the work on the president's house continued at a brisk pace in the spring and summer. It was during this period that Washington made a change in the administration of the project. The three previous commissioners were replaced by new commissioners who would be paid and actually, quote, reside on the spot, whereas the previous commissioners, due to their compensation not being from a quote-unquote fixed salary, had routinely been out of town attending to their own affairs. As can be expected, this had caused delays and hindered their abilities to be aware of the details of the project, to say nothing of the folly of trying to convince people to come and live at a place that one wasn't willing to live one's own self. The reorganization would help Washington to be able to hand off with confidence the project to managers on the ground, one of whom was a personal confidant, Alexander White, 
and allow the president to focus more time on other affairs. And boy howdy, were there plenty of those to go around for him in 1795. Before we go any further, in case you had any doubts, this is the Presidencies of the United States, and I'm your host, Jerry Landry. When last we left off, the Jay Treaty had just been conditionally ratified by the Senate. However, this condition, the renegotiation of Article 12 of the treaty, left Washington wondering how he should proceed as the Constitution only provided that the President, quote, shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties, provided two-thirds of the Senators present concur. Would he have to submit the entire final treaty to the Senate, just the new article, or would their approval in the special session suffice without any further Senate approval being needed? Would he have to work with the Senate to craft new language for Article 12, or could he proceed on his own? At the urging of Secretary of State Edmund Randolph, Washington hem-hawed around until the Senate adjourned so as to secure the exclusive power of the executive to renegotiate new language for the article. There was, however, the first question to be answered, and thus Washington sent a memo to all of the cabinet members on June 29th asking for written opinions. Before anyone can reply, though, a couple of other major events happened on the same day, beginning with a letter from John Jay. The Chief Justice and Special Envoy to Britain arrived back in New York City on May 28th to a, quote, vast multitude who escorted him to his home, quote, with frequent cheers and every possible demonstration of joy and respect. Bells across the city were rung his honor at six that evening, quote, and at seven, a federal salute was fired from the battery, which was returned from the fort on Governor's Island. Now, these cheers were not just for the successful conclusion of his diplomatic mission. Rather, they were to celebrate the return of the man who looked like he would be the next governor of the state of New York. Jay had been put forward as governor back in 1792, but lost in a close race against incumbent Governor George Clinton amid charges from Federalists that voting irregularities and decisions made by pro-Clinton election canvassers had stolen the election from Jay. The 1792 election ensured that the Democratic Republicans would put forward a new candidate in 1795, Robert Yates, while the Federalists stuck with Jay. As Jay was arriving in New York in late May, the first results were being printed in newspapers, with Jay ultimately winning by over a thousand votes. Though Jay had retained his position as Chief Justice while serving as Special Envoy, he knew that there was no way he could retain the position on the Supreme Court while leading the executive branch of New York. The prospect of leaving the court left Jay with mixed feelings, as he admitted in a letter to Egbert Benson, with Jay writing, quote, God only knows whether my removal from the bench to my present station will conduce to my comfort or not. However, he was resigned to the move. Quote, the die is cast, and nothing remains for me to consider but how to fulfill in the best manner the duties incumbent on me as governor without any regard to personal consequences. Thus, he wrote a short letter to Washington on June 29th, resigning as Chief Justice, and assuring him that, quote, I cannot quit the position without again expressing to you my acknowledgement for the honor you conferred upon me by that appointment, and for the repeated marks of confidence and attention for which I am indebted to you. A biographer of Jay, Richard B. Morris, provided the following summation of Jay's tenure as the first Chief Justice. Quote, 
He was active neither as a court reformer nor as an expositor of technical branches of law. Indeed, some of his controversial opinions carried scant legal research to bolster them. Instead, he is remembered as a creative statesman and activist chief justice whose concepts of the broad purposes of the Constitution were to be upheld and spelled out with vigor by John Marshall. In bringing the states into subordination to the federal government, in securing from the states and the people reluctant recognition of the supremacy of treaties, and in laying the foundation for the later exercise by the Supreme Court of the power to declare acts of Congress unconstitutional, Jay gave bold directions to the new constitutional regime. While his tenure on the court could be summed up upon his resignation, Jay's impact as a diplomat was still up for debate, especially as on the same day that Washington was asking for the opinions of his cabinet members about how to proceed with the treaty and that Jay was resigning as Chief Justice, the details of the treaty that the incoming governor of New York had negotiated were being revealed to the public for the first time. As noted in the last episode, Benjamin Franklin Bosch had obtained a copy of the treaty and on June 29th published an abstract of it, following up on July 1st with a pamphlet printing the entire treaty for the public to read. The response was much as Washington and Randolph had feared, and the attacks against Jay got personal very quick. As noted by Jay biographer Walter Starr, quote, For about six weeks, on almost every day of the week, there was a protest against Jay and his treaty in some city or town. In Charleston, South Carolina, the citizens celebrated Bastille Day by dragging the Union Jack through the mud and then burning it in front of the home of the British consul. In New York City, when Alexander Hamilton tried to defend the treaty at a public meeting, he was hit by a stone and then retreated, saying he could not respond to such arguments. Newspapers were filled with articles and parodies, prose and poetry denouncing Jay. One poem in particular expresses the sentiment against Jay. It goes as follows, quote, May it please your highness, I, John Jay, have traveled all this mighty way to inquire if you, good Lord, will please to suffer me while on my knees to show all others I surpass in love by kissing of your, I think you get the point. The takeaway from this is that public sentiment was inflamed, and the opposition, which had for the greater part of 1794 had reason to align with the administration and make little noise, now had an issue on which it could hang its hat. Why had 1794 been so peaceful while the debate on the Jay Treaty would reignite the growing factional divide? Well, let's look at the issues of 1794. Much of what the administration dealt with that year the Whiskey Rebellion, the Transaconi Republic, the Northwest Indian War, had been, at least in a very simplistic fashion, about a certain group rebelling against the government of the United States. As noted by historian Jeffrey Paisley, even the Democratic-Republican leaders were not willing to go that far, so long as they felt that there were means within the established system to seek redress for grievances. An instance of this that we've already seen was Thomas Jefferson being unwilling to go as far or as radical as Philip Furneaux during the Genet Affair. In the instance of the Whiskey Rebellion, even Benjamin Franklin Bosch called in his newspaper for moderation, for, as he noted, quote, In this country, we have fortunately no yoke to shake off. We have neither the king's power to fear, 
nor the oppression of an hereditary aristocracy. The Jay Treaty, though, was something different. Here was a treaty devised and signed in secret, then ratified by the Senate in secret. This was just the thing to get the old partisan juices aflowing. Meanwhile, the administration was still trying to figure out how to respond to this conditional ratification. Secretary of the Treasury Oliver Walcott and Secretary of War Timothy Pickering would respond quickly their opinion that they felt no further Senate approval was needed prior to the treaty going into effect. However, days went by and Washington still hadn't received a written response from Secretary of State Randolph or Attorney General William Bradford. Washington couldn't make up his mind on how to proceed without the opinions of his full cabinet. Or could he? On July 3rd, Washington sent a letter seeking the advice of someone who had been out of public office for nearly half a year at this point, Alexander Hamilton. As Washington wrote to his former secretary, quote, It is not the opinion of those who were determined before it was promulgated to support or oppose it, i.e. the treaty that I am solicitous to obtain. For these I know well, rarely do more than examine the side to which they lean, without giving the reverse the consideration it deserves. My desire is to learn from dispassionate men who have knowledge of the subject and abilities to judge it, the genuine opinion they entertain of each article of the instrument and the result of it in the aggregate. He was not just asking Hamilton's opinion of what to do about the conditional ratification of the treaty. Rather, he was asking Hamilton's opinion on the full treaty. At this point, the entire treaty had been published, so it was public knowledge. The questions that the president had posed to his cabinet to respond to in writing were added as a P.S. What Washington wanted from Hamilton was a complete assessment of whether this treaty was one worth fighting for. I'm going to read between the lines here, so get those grains of salt ready. Washington does not seem at this point to have the confidence in his cabinet that he had displayed in the cabinet of his first term. Only one member of that cabinet remained, Edmund Randolph, and though they worked together closely, and Washington could likely surmise his response to the questions posed, he felt he needed another opinion, dare I say it, a more expert opinion, or at the very least, an opinion from someone that he trusted. In his first cabinet, he had had Hamilton and Knox, who he had commanded in the Revolutionary War, and fellow Virginians Jefferson and Randolph, who, even if he hadn't known them that well previously, he could at least relate to, due to their familiarity with Virginia society. In this new cabinet, besides Randolph, he had Pickering and Walcott, who he was familiar with due to their prior connections with the administration, but with neither had he developed a close relationship. Bradford, meanwhile, had been a geographically convenient addition, being from Pennsylvania, but likely due both to the nature of the attorney generalship as well as their personal proclivities. Despite having been on the job for a year and a half at this point, it doesn't seem from my research like Washington and Bradford had developed more than a cordial working relationship. He was not working with the dream team anymore and Washington knew it. If he was to proceed on the wisest course, then he needed the advice of someone he could trust. Little did he know of Hamilton's prior work on the treaty ratification up to that point, 
At least from my research, I can find no evidence that Washington was aware of Hamilton's communications with Rufus King and possible knowledge of the specifics of the treaty prior to its release to the public. Hamilton, as likely Washington anticipated he would, jumped at the opportunity to deliver a well-articulated and thorough critique of the Jay Treaty. He sent his analysis in what was described by Ron Chernow as, quote, three thick chunks on July 9th, 10th, and 11th. Overall, he approved of the treaty, though he did contest Article 12 and expressed his concern over Article 18. However, his final opinion was that, quote, with peace, the force of circumstances will enable us to make our way sufficiently fast in trade. War at this time would give a serious wound to our growth and prosperity. In this analysis, we can see the demarcation lines that will define the Federalist and the Democratic Republicans moving forward. As Hamilton writes, quote, We are in a deplorable situation if we cannot secure peace and promote our own interests by means which not only do not derogate from our faith, but which leave the same advantages to France as to other powers with whom we form treaties. While Hamilton was defining the Federalist arguments for the treaty and working to get support for it in the administration, the Democratic-Republicans were moving into a new phase of their campaign against it. Now, one point to note here is the novelty of what the opposition was getting set to do. As noted by Paisley, quote, While everyone understood the concept of organizing an election campaign to remove an obnoxious official, especially on a local level, Doing it to influence policy was less familiar, and not even the most ardent Democrats in Philadelphia were ready to try it nationally right away. They had spent the first part of the year trying to craft an argument without knowing the specifics of the treaty and working to determine exactly who the intended audience was. Was there still hope that either the Senate or President Washington could be influenced, or would they have to go to the people? They at least had the tools in place. In June 1795, a new daily newspaper called the Argus was founded in New York to serve as the Democratic-Republican paper for that city. In fact, it boldly proclaimed itself as such in its editorial mission statement, a move that even Bosch and the Aurora hadn't taken initially, though it was quite apparent to those who read it. The Argus and the Aurora, along with other party newspapers across the nation, would give voice to Democratic-Republican ideas and arguments. They had learned from the experience of the National Gazette. The vision for that paper had been a newspaper distributed nationwide and financially dependent on subscribers, but the infrastructure was not in place to support such a paper just yet. However, a local network of newspapers, which exchanged and reprinted articles, while also including local content and financially supporting themselves through advertising sales, local subscriptions, and print jobs on the side, was doable. So it was that such a network was created in 1794 and the first part of 1795 and was in place when the text of Jay's Treaty was made public. They also had their arguments locked down. As stated last episode, it was not just that they rejected the specific articles of the treaty, which, of course, they had no way of knowing about until June. The argument became a systematic rejection of any treaty with Britain, as such a treaty would give support and approbation to monarchy, or so the opposition argument started to run. This wasn't just a fight against a treaty. 
This was part of a larger war of democracy versus monarchy. This was a political crusade. For his part, Benjamin Franklin Bosch was not content with just publishing and distributing copies of the treaty around Philadelphia. He decided to take the show on the road. Recruiting the assistance of his wife Margaret and a colleague to keep his newspaper running, Bosch set off traveling north up the eastern seaboard to distribute copies of the pamphlet he had printed, while an associate headed south with more copies. The timing of all this did not help matters for the administration. The 4th of July was a big holiday even back then, with celebrations planned across the nation. A patriotic holiday with crowds gathering with likely much inebriation involved. And now, you've got an inflammatory treaty that the opposition was accusing of being a threat to freedom? Yeah, it's not hard to imagine how this is going to go. As the nation's capital, naturally a big celebration was already in the works in Philadelphia, and the revelry and the trouble got started early with people crowding into the offices of the Aurora for copies of the treaty pamphlets and with a toast being given, calling for a major demonstration that evening. The Democratic Society of that city had already planned an illumination, basically a transparency lit from behind, of John Jay holding a pair of scales with American liberty and independence on one side, but with the scales tipping the other way, labeled British gold. The figure of Jay held out a copy of his treaty to a group of senators with a word balloon exclaiming, quote, come up to my price and I will sell you my country. They planned for this illumination to be positioned and lit right in front of Vice President Adams's house around 11 in the evening. From what I've read, it doesn't seem that they made it to the Vice President's house as the procession was confronted by a light horse company in the Kensington District a predominantly working-class immigrant neighborhood northeast of Philadelphia, that they forced back, quote, with stones and clubs, after which, in celebration, they burned the image of Jay, then dispersed to the winds. Speaking of being attacked by stones, you didn't think I was going to leave you hanging without giving you more details on Hamilton being assaulted, did you? You should know me better than that by now. Before we get to that, it would behoove us to turn our attention quickly to the celebrations for the 4th at Wilmington, Delaware. 200 folks gathered for what was labeled a, quote, Republican repast, which included toasts to, quote, His Excellency John Jay. May he and his treaty be forever politically damned. As well as a much more foreshadowing one for Thomas Jefferson, quote, The Scientific and Republican Statesman. I don't think I'm giving too much away by saying that, Though Jefferson had been little mentioned publicly thus far in 1795, the situation was soon to change. Okay, Hamilton's being assaulted. Democratic Republicans in the city of Boston, in what was and still remains a time-honored New England tradition, secured the required number of signatures to call a town meeting on July 10th to discuss the treaty. Federalists stayed away from the meeting, and thus resolutions calling for Washington to reject the treaty were drawn up and approved. After this successful meeting, Democratic Republicans in other cities and towns up and down the coast called for similar meetings in their localities, including in New York City. The word went round that a meeting would be held on July 18th at City Hall, the former Federal Hall, which had been the site of Washington's first inauguration and where the first Congress had met before the move to Philadelphia. Unlike the Boston Federalists, Hamilton and Federalists in New York decided that they needed to participate in this meeting in order to try to turn the tide. As soon as the time came for the meeting to begin, 
Hamilton began to speak to the crowd, but he would find that this was not a friendly assembly. First, he was interrupted by a call for a chairman for the meeting, then by a call for a vote on opinions about the treaty. As described by Paisley, quote, Hamilton tried to keep talking, complaining that there should be a full discussion before there was any vote, but another wave of hisses, coughs, and catcalls swamped the former Treasury Secretary's voice. Every attempt he made to exert control was thwarted, and then the rocks started flying. There were only a couple, mind you, but it was enough to convince Hamilton and his supporters that their opinion was not wanted in this meeting, and they left the hall. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. But that wasn't all of the ignominy that Hamilton would face that day. In the streets, he would end up in a shouting match with a group of Democratic Republicans and end up issuing not one, but two challenges to duel. Thankfully, neither of these would end up in an actual duel. But those of you who know anything about Hamilton know he should probably avoid duels. With his in-person appeal to the people of New York failing spectacularly, Hamilton turned to another medium in an attempt to convince his fellow citizens, the printed word. He planned an effort like the Federalist Papers to counter Democratic-Republican arguments against the treaty and pulled in Rufus King as a collaborator. Governor Jay was consulted on the effort, but did not contribute his pen to the series of essays. As Vice President Adams would note in a letter to his wife Abigail a few months later, quote, Jay was to have written a concluding peroration, but being always a little lazy and perhaps concluding upon the whole that it might be most politic to keep his name out of it, and perhaps finding that the work was already well done, he neglected it. The work that would come to be known as the defense would be largely Hamilton's doing. As noted by Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow, quote, over a period of nearly six months, he, Hamilton, published 28 glittering essays, strengthening his claim as arguably the foremost political pamphleteer in American history. As with the Federalist Papers, the defense spilled out at a torrid pace, sometimes two or three essays per week. In all, Hamilton poured forth nearly 100,000 words, even as he kept up a full-time legal practice. But what of the administration? How were they responding to all of this? Well, Secretary of State Randolph fell ill with, quote, a slight indisposition at the beginning of July, which kept him at home for a couple of days. But he finally managed to send Washington a letter on the 7th, asking to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Wait, what? Randolph biographer John Reardon agrees with me in speculating that the president did a double take while he was reading this letter. Wasn't Randolph supposed to be working on a written opinion on what to do about the Jay Treaty? A written opinion that Randolph himself had suggested that Washington request from his cabinet? What was this mess? Seriously, though, Randolph wrote Washington a private letter containing another letter that has not been found, but which seems to suggest Randolph as a replacement for John Jay as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Though Randolph claimed that he had asked other folks to not speak of the matter to Washington, here Randolph was sending Washington the letter. Why? Well, he starts out by stating that, as he knows that Washington is likely to retire at the end of his term, he didn't want to serve under another president. Past the flattery, we get a more likely reason. Quote, I run in debt and hazard again those difficulties from which the sales of my estate are likely to relieve me. The incessant anxiety of my wife, founded upon the experience of the last 18 months, 
i.e. Randolph serving as Secretary of State, urges me even now to adopt as alternative either to put down my carriage and live in a very circumscribed style or to go again into the practice of law. A return to an active legal practice would likely involve him returning to Virginia, quote, and I do not wish to go further south than Alexandria at any rate. Meanwhile, the other option, living within his means, quote, does not correspond with public expectation, and public expectation must, in a degree, be consulted. Yeah, I know, world's smallest fiddle. So what's behind curtain number three? Quote, I am now brought to that stage of my reflections, at which my sensibility is most alive. A transposition into Mr. Blair's office would seem to separate me rather more from you. The Mr. Blair referred to is Associate Justice John Blair, who was rumored to be considering stepping down from the court. And indeed, Blair would resign on January 27, 1796. But at this point, it was just hearsay and rumor. The only recent vacancy on the court was Jay's, and that position had already been filled by a Southerner who was not Edmund Randolph. John Rutledge of South Carolina had been a delegate to the Stamp Act Congress and the Continental Congresses, as well as serving as Governor of South Carolina before his appointment to the court as an Associate Justice in September 1789. However, as would often be the case with the early Justices, Rutledge quickly grew weary of the long circuit riding to attend courts in the South, and, as noted by Robert M. Ireland, was, quote, bored by the Supreme Court's inactivity so he resigned from the court on March 5, 1791. Upon hearing of Jay's election as governor of New York, and assuming that would mean that a vacancy was coming soon, Rutledge wrote to Washington on June 12, 1795, assuring him that, quote, I have no objection to take the place which he, Jay, holds, if you think me as fit as any other person and have not made choice of one to succeed him. The opportunistic letter paid off, and Rutledge was appointed by Washington on July 1st in a recess appointment to fill Jay's vacancy. This was only the second recess appointment in Supreme Court history, the first having been to replace Rutledge on the court, but as was stipulated in the Constitution, Washington would have to submit the nomination to the Senate when it was back in session for confirmation. We will be returning to the second Chief Justice at some point, but for now, the important point is that the second Secretary of State is indicating that he's ready to make his exit from the administration. Great. Fantastic. The news just got better for Washington, as word started filtering over to the U.S. in late June, early July, that the British government had issued a new order in council to its navy to seize ships carrying food to France, and that American ships had been among those already seized. This compounded the problem for Washington on what to do with a treaty that he wasn't really thrilled with and that citizens were complaining about. Finally, on July 12th, after Washington sent along Hamilton's analysis of the treaty, Randolph provided Washington with his written opinion on the treaty. He concluded that the treaty could be ratified without resubmitting a new version of Article 12 to the Senate, and that Washington could go ahead and sign the treaty without that revision being in place. However, the question was whether Washington should sign it. Randolph went through the pros and cons of the matter and finally reached the conclusion that Washington could use final ratification of the treaty as leverage to get the order in council revoked. He even laid out what could be said to British minister to the U.S. George Hammond about the matter. 
Washington signed off on the plan and Randolph went to speak to Hammond. Unfortunately, Hammond didn't see matters quite the same as Randolph. He didn't feel that the order in council was an impediment to Washington signing the treaty and wasn't prepared to make any sort of deal. Thus, the matter was at an impasse once more. Washington had made plans to depart from Mount Vernon on July 14th, so he tasked Randolph with drafting a revised Article 12 during his absence, in addition to his usual responsibility for keeping Washington informed of government affairs while he was away. Matters had gotten a bit more confusing as to what to do, as Washington, just prior to his departure, received a new letter from Hamilton in which Hamilton gave his opinion that the new language for Article 12 would have to be submitted to the Senate for approval. In a hurry to get out of town, Washington sent word to Hamilton and Randolph to work together to determine a course forward. News would continue to come in of popular discontent over the treaty. Public meetings proceeded. Newspaper editorials continued to assail Jay and any others with an inkling of pro-British sympathies. And memorials, including one from nine selectmen from Boston, were sent to the president urging him to reject the treaty. Towards the end of the month, Washington decided to break his silence and respond to the memorial from Boston. He began the letter with a strong assertion that, quote, In every act of my administration, I have sought the happiness of my fellow citizens. My system for the attainment of this object has uniformly been to overlook all personal, local, and partial considerations, to contemplate the United States as one great whole, to confide that sudden impressions, when erroneous, would yield to candid reflection, and to consult only the substantial and permanent interest of our country. Nor have I departed from this line of conduct on the occasion which has produced the resolutions contained in your letter of the 13th instant. He assures them that he has, quote, weighed with attention every argument which has at any time been brought into view, but that the ultimate authority to make treaties was his, with, of course, quote, the advice and consent of the Senate. He attempts to convey the level of seriousness and responsibility he feels in this, but asserts that, quote, I have resolved on the manner of executing the duty now before me, and concludes that, quote, while I feel the most lively gratitude for the many instances of approbation for my country, I can no otherwise deserve it than by obeying the dictates of my conscience. Basically, the letter can be summed up in two words of more modern parlance, back off. While it is understandable that Washington felt that he was caught between a rock and a hard place as far as the treaty was concerned, this response is also rather tone-deaf, and indeed was interpreted by Democratic-Republican commentators shortly thereafter as suggesting, quote, that critics of the treaty were not concerned citizens, but predatory political enemies who were owed no explanations. Washington expresses his frustration at trying to figure out how to handle the situation when he responds on the 27th to a recent letter received from Secretary of War Pickering, which, quote, places the proceedings of the town at Boston in a different point of view than might have been entertained from the resolutions which were sent to me, but much indeed to be regretted. Party disputes are now carried to that length, and truth is so enveloped in mist and false representation that it is extremely difficult to know through what channel to seek it. This difficulty to one who is of no party 
and whose sole wish is to pursue with undeviating steps a path which would lead this country to respectability, wealth, and happiness is exceedingly to be lamented. But such is the turbulence of human passions and party disputes, when victory, more than truth, is the palm contented for that the post of honor is a private station. As much as he wanted to remain in the relative peace and quiet of Mount Vernon, in a letter dated July 31st, Washington received a report from Philadelphia that had him making preparations to head back. It was not from the man he had appointed to keep him apprised of matters, however. It was instead from the Secretary of War, Timothy Pickering. After giving Washington a couple of updates on government matters, Pickering wrote as follows, quote, On the subject of the treaty, I confess I feel extreme solicitude, and for a special reason which can be communicated to you only in person, I entreat, therefore, that you will return with all convenient speed to the seat of government. In the meantime, for the reason above referred to, I pray you to decide on no important political matter, in whatever form it may be presented to you. As cryptic as it was, it was enough to get Washington on the road. What was this special reason drawing the president back to Philadelphia early? Well, I hope you'll join me to find out next time on an episode I'd like to call A Caesar, a Cromwell, and a Washington, The Betrayals of 1795. Special thanks again to James Early for providing the audio for our intro quote. Source information for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. If you'd like to follow up with me with any questions, comments, or just to say hi, there are numerous ways to reach me. I can be reached by email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Thank you so much for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.